I'm Dr. Sharon Blackie, and I'd like to welcome you to my podcast, The Hackitude Sessions. In this series of conversations centered around my book, Hackitude, Reimagining the Second Half of Life, I offer you conversations with women who can sprinkle a few breadcrumbs to help us track our journey through the dark woods of the second half of life. Hackitude is a radical rewriting of the decades ahead for all women in their mid and elder years, beginning with the reclaiming of menopause as a liberating alchemical moment from which to shift into your chosen, authentic and fulfilling future. You can find out more about Hackitude, the book and the membership program at hackitude.org. everybody. So I am absolutely delighted to be joined on the Hecatude Sessions today by Catherine May, who I'm sure all of you will know, the author of the very, very wonderful and best-selling book, Wintering, and more recently, her new book, Enchantment, which we will come on to discuss for sure. So welcome, Catherine, and thanks so much for agreeing to uh, be in conversation today. Oh, no, thank you for having me. I'm excited to talk to you. Okay, so this is the Haggertude Sessions, and um, we, we can see each other by video, even though this is an audio thing, and you don't look very haggy to me, um, I think. Well, if thank I, you. If I remember rightly, I think, I think you're in your mid-40s or thereabouts, That's but you had an yeah. early menopause, yeah. I think you were thrust into it uh, rather early. Yeah. Right. yeah, that's true, yeah, I started having the sort of perimenopausal symptoms when I was in my late 20s so um I yeah it was uh I and it was very hard to uh, get any interest in that from my doctors as you can imagine because uh you know there's me going into the doctors with hot flushes and flooding and they're kind of like mm, no <laughs> so that was I had to I had to go I had to pay privately for the hormonal tests to to show that I had that that profile that they're looking for so that was completely uh, but it spontaneous. Was it wasn't surgically induced or anything like that. Gosh. No, just just began to happen. Um, and it was before I had my son. So they immediately, my GP immediately said, uh, if you're thinking of having a family, come straight to us. You know, we'll have to refer you straight to IVF. So it went from kind of very dismissive to feeling really very serious very quickly and, and like a, a kind of a big deal. So yeah that was that was quite the shock but I do you know what I I always laugh at myself with this because um I always identified as like an old lady when I was growing up it was just my thing I was that child that you know was chatting to all the mums in the playground instead of the other children so I as I get older I just I feel much more at home like I've always been here this is fine <laughs> Yeah, I always felt, I, as soon as I really started to feel older, I felt more comfortable as well. I was never entirely comfortable in a young woman's body. I never entirely felt safe in it, not just physically, mm. who can be mm. safe in a young woman's body, young woman's but also body, psychologically, yeah. just, I agree with you. It just seemed a little bit kind of childish, you know, just not proper. It's, yeah, no, I know what you mean. I And I never, I never felt like my mind was the right age, actually. I always felt like I related to adults more than children. Um, but I, it's, it's really, I think particularly at the age I've just hit, you know, I'm 45. 
And I've noticed women around me start to really despair about visibly aging, you know, all, all the stuff that face creams have on them. And, you know, everyone's putting weight on around their middle and everyone's beginning to get wrinkles and feeling like things are sagging. And, and it's, it's really funny because it just doesn't, I'm, I'm so far untroubled by that. I can, my face is changing, my body is changing. But I, I, I just think about the people I love that had older faces, that had wrinkles, you know, and I, they're very, I think wrinkles are lovely. <laughs> you know, I love, I love to see people's faces begin to crease into their smile lines. It's, it's really, I don't know, it's like a homecoming after all those years of worrying about the least little thing. Uh, I'm relaxed about it, honestly, so far. Perhaps everyone should should start menopause at 29. Maybe that's the, the panacea for this. <laughs> but it must have been a strange thing in the sense that, I mean, normally, clearly, for most people, usually the two things go together, the physical changes mm. and the psychological changes. But you would have had the psychological changes really before the physical ones properly kicked in, I guess. Or did that? <laughs> yeah. Psychological changes. I mean, that sense of a time between stories, mm. you know, that transition period. Mm, mm, mm. You were a mother during that period. Yeah, I mean, I... I didn't really think about it in that sense. I mean, I, when it first happened, um, the doctor didn't explain that it was early menopause. They just explained that it was, uh, that I wouldn't be able to have children. Um, and so I, it, it wasn't really unpacked. You know, I, I spent years thinking, well, I just have a weird hormonal profile. And it was only when I was reading around menopause later for an, a completely other reason that I saw the graphs of what your uh, what your estrogen and progesterone levels will look like if you're tested. And I was like, oh, oh, that's me. And I and I kind of had to kind of backfit it. So like maybe in a way that spared me having to fit those awkward narratives, because I, I don't think they would have fitted quite correctly because of, yeah, like the life, what my body was doing was very different to my life phase. So I... I, I wasn't troubled by it, but I did always feel like my body wasn't following the correct female patterns, you know, and I, and I felt like a bit of a, an outlier in that sense. But yeah, it, it's, it is different if, if just the hormonal stuff's happening and not the life phase stuff is happening. Mm. It's a very different experience. And I, it's hard to, you know, it's hard to think. I wonder about, I wonder like what the psychological impacts were because actually I did suffer very badly from anxiety at that point in my life. And I wonder if that might have been the hormonal changes because now I'm seeing women of my age, you know, going through exactly that kind of really catastrophic, you know, panicky mental health stuff that, that I definitely had around about that time. So you know, it's very hard to to wonder how much the hormones are having an influence, really. Yeah, and and as you kind of approach, your uh, your as you're in your mid forties, which is the kind of time frame, as you say, mm. when most women would be going through those profound psychological changes that are associated with menopause. Do you find yourself having like a second round of changes, or is it a little bit steady? No, no it's no. great. I feel I feel better than I ever have actually. So. I, th I suppose hormonally I'm in that like lovely you know right. late 50s early 60s part that we're beginning to feel okay again <laughs> yeah that's yeah so far I mean I'm I'm touching wood because I, I I still think it's unpredictable um I I don't think it's you know following that pattern very 
directly um but yeah i haven't i haven't been hit by the the same stuff and you know i can i funny enough i was just i was texting my friend just before we came on and she was talking about all that stuff and uh, and i yeah i recognize it from a while ago you know her confidence has just dropped so much and she's being very angry and very frustrated but i think as i said to you before for me the i have got more rage at this stage yeah but it it feels you know that's it feels very separate and it's it's really interesting i think that i'm being i'm being affected by the structural issues but that's that's separate to my hormonal response so i i get to see them separately and i i think yeah. you know that's i can see how heavy it is <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but that is interesting because I always, I, I never was entirely convinced that the rage that most women feel at mm. menopause is specifically hormonal uh, yeah. in, in origin. I mean, I think it probably comes as part of a, a general kind of undoing. You know, everything yes. feels as if it's coming undone, your physical body the world around you and you just mm, get to a stage mm. where you're just tired of all the shit we've all had to take for most of our lives totally. and I think that you know that probably happens at that age regardless of of your of your profile or regardless of your yes. profile it's just it's time as, as well it should actually I think there's loads of outrageous things that that we're dealing with and I it, it actually worries me that this this new conversation about menopause that's much more open and much more informed has so quickly morphed into using menopause as a scapegoat for every bad thing that happened to women at middle you know middle middle age or what would you say like even even earlier than that sometimes i think whatever that but, is yeah and i it really worries me that now if if you you know say online oh I feel really furious today 20 people pop up and say oh you need HRT and it's like no I need to destroy the patriarchy exactly, <laughs> exactly. That, I do think that rage has a function you know and in Hagatude I was writing about the furies the, the the three old Greek ladies whose job it was to get mad I mean that was their job that was their cosmic job you know yes. um, because if they did they had to get mad in order to put the world back into balance they had to go out to the perpetrators of evil and um, show them the mm. error of their ways and try to get them to somehow fix it in order to put the cosmos mm. back in balance. And I do think that there is- it's wonderful, a... isn't it? <laughs> we need some purity. It's the perfect <laughs> archetype for, for menopause, I think, in many ways. But but in that sense, I wonder, so again, you know, I, I was writing about that archetype of the medial woman, which whatever way you look at it is, associated with a kind of spiritual awakening which a lot of women don't have any time for or might be a little bit frightened of or yeah. feel a little bit foolish about doing but nevertheless I think it comes knocking on everybody's door that sense of spiritual mm. awakening whether we choose to go down that path or not yeah whether you open the door or not yeah, yeah exactly and yeah. you know the, uh, the archetypes of the alchemist and the witch and the mystic and so on associated with that medial mm. woman archetype which I see very much as a time of menopause jumping mm. into enchantment for a moment which i didn't mean yes. to but we got there anyway <laughs> yeah you talk nevertheless about this time in your life as a time of spiritual awakening and i, I wonder mm. again mm. whether these archetypes are at some level midlife archetypes again regardless yeah. of your hormonal status so that's, that's something yeah that seems to be happening for you 
Yeah, it's funny. It's it really struck me when I read Hagitude that you know that that's what I'd just written about an enchantment. I mean, enchantment wasn't out at the time, so I couldn't really talk about it. But I'd um, you know I'd written about this urge, I guess, this desire that had visited me for a more spiritual relationship with the world around me and for a a more I don't know like more nuanced understanding of of living a spiritual life. And it hadn't really occurred to me that that was about age, but I was really clear that in my 20s, I would have felt ashamed and embarrassed of of talking about that and of expressing that desire and that need and that, you know, urge towards the the, the ineffable. You know, I, I think I, I grew up in an age where everyone was reading Richard Dawkins and Christopher Hitchens and like really being so very anti-religion and I felt like that was the right camp to side with but it took an enormous effort to keep pushing the the spiritual away actually I think and maybe it maybe one of the things is that you just care less about what other people think of you at this age and so I don't feel like I need to make that that effort to maintain you know, this presentation as the perfect rational late capitalist human being who's <laughs> it, it just it began to trouble me less that to look you know that I had to fit in than it did than it was troubling me that I was lacking this ability to enter into flow with with the world around me and to to open up possibilities and I I wanted that much more yeah, yeah. It, it is it is strange when you kind of come out in that way as a kind of yeah. yes all yeah. of a sudden yeah. all of the people around you say yeah 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 I've been thinking about you know mm. in that way too and it almost it's almost as if there is a still a mass embarrassment in the culture today um, such a British thing isn't it that it's embarrassment desperately British, <laughs> British except you know I do see it in America too yeah. um, and other parts of the world but we particularly are good at being embarrassed but that sense of you know a disenchanted world a world that has moved mm. away from that and the ways in which it has made us dysfunctional not just as a species yeah. but as individuals because we don't know what to do with the rest of our lives mm. in that case I mean Carl Jung said that the second half of life is a spiritual time of life and yeah. if we don't yeah. turn to that if we don't recognize that sense of a need for meaning and a proper immersion in and engagement mm. with the world then we really don't do the job of the second half of life properly and that to me is so yeah it's... yeah no I, I agree and I'm as you're talking I'm thinking I can't remember the word but there's a um there's a Hindu tradition of uh retiring from your your met your life's work and entering into a kind of uh retirement that's semi-monastic uh, and that devotes yourself to the spiritual realm. So you 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 do the you make the money, you look after your family, and then you're waiting for this this time when when it opens up for you and when you're able to to live a more kind of devour life. Um, and I I think that chimes with me quite strongly as well. That that these things take a bit of time and space, and maybe maybe it's completely appropriate that they begin to encroach more once you've dealt with those very worldly concerns of, you know, going out, having a job, 
making a household, founding whatever family format it is you want to found, figuring out like who you are. Mm. Um, it, it, it seems like there's a there's a kind of order to that that I find quite appealing, actually. Indeed. And is it you clearly then, in that sense, identify with that archetype of the medial woman? If, if any of those mm. subsections, kind of the alchemist, you know, very much transformative, <laughs> the, the witch, which now we think of as very much nature associated, or yeah. the mystic, which is a little bit more kind of retiring, Hildegard of Bingen. Are there any of those? Particular... I love Hildegard. <laughs> yeah, I figured you might yeah. say that. that I do be, love Hildegard, yeah. Retiring from, from the world. <sighs> well, do you know what? I I feel like I fall between camps a bit because I... There's no way I have the opportunity to retire from the world yet. You know, I have a ten-year-old, so uh, there's I'm very much like involved in the the thrust of that right now, and will be for at least a decade. And so I I think my dream is the is is the mystic one day without a doubt. Like I I was reading recently about Hildegard and thinking full body yes to to that. You know, <laughs> largely. Um, and also, she like, was I very think much lot... in the world, wasn't she? I mean, she was she out was there actually, to be like, fair, she, yeah. and talking to popes and yeah. politicians and goodness knows what. So yeah, wasn't a complete. Yeah, she, and, and she loved a good petition, didn't she? She really liked to <laughs> to, like, <laughs> to go out and argue her case. But she composed beautiful music too, and I love the the sense of her as a polymath, um, yeah. which I like. Again, like I don't think I have the time to be a polymath. Quite frankly, I. I, I think that would take a bit more time than I can give it. Um, so I dream of that. And I also think about Mary Oliver as a as a sort of, as a vision of my future, you know, the, the quiet life that she lived and, and that was so beautiful and spiritually rich and yet uh, actually very, very much retired from, from the centre of things. Uh, and I, I look forward to that, but I, I think I'm a little more witchy in this phase. I think I, I think well, I'm there busy. Never just be one, you know. I do think that the archetypes we identify with change dramatically through sometimes throughout our lives. But even in adulthood, I mean, that's a big chunk of time. You know, it's the second half of our lives. So yeah, plenty, yeah, plenty of stuff to yeah. be going on with. But I, it's funny. I like about eighteen months ago, I attended a course about making mushroom uh, medicine from mushrooms. And since then, I've been potion making ever since. And it, it's become like a little bit of a joke about amongst my friends that I'm, I've got a potion for everything now. And it, <laughs> it feels that to me as like practical as it actually has been. Um, that feels very much like a life phase to me. Like I, I've got this need to help to heal, to, to look after people, to, to take care and to to look for remedies um and to almost be working with the natural world around me in a way that that sort of channels its potency so i'm i'm definitely in quite a witchy a witchy phase at the moment well that's interesting because you know i think there is such a thing as a word which um which mm, i can aspire to mm, be as well in the sense that words mm, can be healing as well can't they and yeah. certainly the, yeah. the kind of books that you write are very healing for people because they're they're drawing people into a way of being in the world which is kind of an antidote to the madness so that in mm. itself is also healing not that potions aren't very wonderful as well but potions are great but yeah <laughs> well I I um, yeah I would say job you know 
Yeah, well, we've both worked with this word enchantment, haven't we? And that I, I was writing my newsletter about that this week and how you can use it in so many different ways, which is why, why it appealed to me, you know, and there's the sense of being enchanted and that as a state of being. But there's also the sense of casting an enchantment somehow or creating a spell. And then there's the sense of something being under an enchantment, uh, you know, that the, the, I mean, like in the Mabinogion and the fog descending and, and those kind of images, this, this sort of magical, I don't know, state of like the world is in is under the, the cloak of magic. And that is probably beyond our human control to, to remove it. And I, I enjoy all those different, <laughs> different senses of of the word actually because I on one hand I mean I part of enchantment is about how brain foggy I felt during the the pandemic um again which everyone leapt online to tell me was menopause and I was like no I've been through that bit already it's not (laughs) it's actually just not having any time or space for myself and you know in, in a time of lockdown and I that to me felt like being under an enchantment actually and so, uh, but to combat it, it needed a counter spell. And I think that's that's what a book can be almost, like a very long way of casting a, a spell. Well, yeah, it's that old Latin um, definition of enchantment as encantare, literally to sing mm. into. And that, of course, was what spelling was back in the day. Certainly in our old traditions, yeah. it was about words and it was about the power of intent behind Mm. words and it does seem it did seem to me when I was writing the enchanted life and thinking about that concept of what it means to sing into that all of us whether we are musicians whether we're wordsmiths um, all of us who who kind of in some way work uh, with with music or with words are Mm. doing precisely that we are literally casting a spell in the old way that it was meant if we if we do it well and and if it is informed by uh, the natural the natural world around us and our relationship with mm. it particularly mm. it's, a, it's a kind of channeling isn't it i i yes. find um yeah. i find it very it hard to the world yeah yeah I, I mean not not in any kind of i don't know not it doesn't relate to any like belief system to me but i always feel when i'm writing and when i'm writing well specifically that it's not coming, I'm not making that consciously. It's not, uh, I don't have access to the part of me that that creates my books. It does feel much more like a a sort of act of mediumship. Um, And, you know, routinely I will return to my work a couple of days later and think, where did that come from? I don't I don't think I did that. (laughs) I have exactly the same thing. When I look at If Women Are Rooted Now, for example, which is my first nonfiction book, which has made its way out in the world in a a way that we didn't exactly anticipate when I first wrote it, when it was first published. (laughs) And I really do feel as if that is because it has its own life. You know, you create Mm. something, you you kind of spell it into being, but you are Mm. creating something that has a purpose you know, it might sound a little bit woo-woo, sorry, but it has a kind of purpose <laughs> and, a, and a way and a, a becoming, if you like, of its own. And you put it out there and it's kind of like letting a child go when it's ready. Yes. You know, you yeah. still have an attachment to it and some responsibility yep. for it, but nevertheless, you have to <laughs> let it do um, its work in the world. Yeah. And that is, I, it, sure. And I love that. And I, like, I love the way that in my reader's hands, in every single different reader's hands, the book becomes a different artefact and has different meaning. And 
as soon as somebody else reads it, it's changed. It, the, the whole process almost starts again. Um, and I, it's, it's quite interesting when I talk to non-writers about that, they assume that that's really painful and that I wouldn't be able to let it go. But I find that really invigorating when somebody talks to you back about the ideas you've put out there and kind of enriches them for you and remodels them. Um, and you see angles of your own work as if they're refreshed, like you've like angles you never saw before. And I, I love that. I love the way that even writing books that feel so static, really, they're, they're so collaborative and they're, they're still acts of oral storytelling. But the, the oral part comes later when people talk about them to you. No, I absolutely agree with you. And, and I do. I found myself at one stage, um, I don't know, when I first really started to focus on writing nonfiction, and there was a lot of talk about words and how, you know, how we had, we'd killed words when we started to put them down on the page. And it was only when yeah. they were actually spoken in an oral kind of setting, in an oral traditional oral setting, that they had magic and meaning. And that if they did have any magic and meaning when they're on the page, it was probably a bad thing. And it really infuriated me because yeah. I do agree with you. I think there is something about you can you can do words differently when you have the mm. space of a blank page to you know to think is that the right word and you can you know I'm yeah. sure you've done it I've, I can spend an hour on a on a phrase let alone on a <laughs> yes. sentence and then yeah. you're choosing the exact word and then as you say somebody else looks at that word and makes something else of it so it is a mm. it is a very beautiful form of magic it's a different magic from oral mm. storytelling but I, I actually see words and the page uh not necessarily as static at all but something that again yeah. has a life of its own so yeah with you on that. Yeah, and it's actually, I mean, I love I love writing in this particular age where as writers we also have podcasts and newsletters and Instagram feeds and it's I'm I'm able to then constantly remake the, those formulations and, and repurpose them and share them and you know like this this week as the book has hit the world I people have been sending me poems that my book reminded them of or photographs of a place or sharing personal stories and that that's the bit I, I actually I don't enjoy the the whole kind of long run-up to publication I find it really nerve-wracking and kind of uh, I don't know like a bit doom-laden like it makes me feel like something's coming for me <laughs> but, <laughs> but once that turn on you yes well you, you just it you know, books feel like very unpredictable beasts, honestly. They're very, and they're very powerful. <laughs> and I, you know, I, I don't know if people realise how a, a book is something you never feel like you've got full control over. That they're these sort of tempestuous creatures that you're sort of trying to gather in like a bunch of balloons, but there's always one that's trying to float away. <laughs> And I, yeah, once it gets out there and, and you start getting that call and response and even even sometimes when those responses are negative, as long as they're thought out, I, I actually really enjoy that when people say, oh, well, I don't think you thought of this, you know, or um, I don't understand this connection that you've made. And I, I really enjoy, without inviting too much of it in, like I really enjoy those engagements where I kind of get to say, sometimes like oh no I, I was thinking about it this way actually or you're right that perspective didn't come into to that to my thinking at all and that person is then making the next piece of work on which I 
I find really invigorating. Yeah, I love that too. So enchantment is clearly at some level uh, an approximation of coming closer to the sacred or the spiritual or whatever words that you like to use. But as I did in The Enchanted Life, you were also talking about it very much in the sense of a lived physical experience so to me when I defined enchantment for the purposes of that book which would have been I was writing that probably in about 2016-2017 yeah it was very much a time when I was trying to come back into my own body which I'd never really been very good at when I was younger it's like I just I didn't really know what to do with it you know it was there yeah same as me but it's okay I I just couldn't get to grips with it and (laughs) Uh, and yet it seemed to me that the process of enchantment as I was kind of, you know, living my way into that and writing my way into it was very mm. much, everybody said, oh, enchantment is magical thinking. And it wasn't to me. It was very much about an, a deeply embodied connection with the mm. natural world mm. to the extent that you find yourself immersed in it. I don't necessarily mean, you know, losing sight of yourself as a human uh, being, but but the, just that sense of those moments where you really do slip into the world around you and don't feel yeah. don't feel as if you're separate from it and it seems that yeah. you so see it in absolutely that way yeah definitely and I I've I've definitely had the same journey of uh learning to just be more embodied having been a very head child <laughs> like becoming a kind of more fully inhabited human <laughs> as I've got older but the 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 word merging I think is really really important for me and it I began to think about that when I was walking with a friend a few years ago and she's autistic too and so we were both talking about nature writing and how kind of uncomfortable I was within the paradigm of nature writing because I felt like I felt like it was very middle class and masculine and it was once upon a time it was uh, yeah it was and and that kind of striving out into nature to tell other people about it as if that is if it it was a static thing and I I was like I was expressing my kind of squirming discomfort being called a nature writer and she said for autistic people we're not trying to be in nature we're trying to merge with it and I really thought that's so interesting to me because that's exactly that's exactly what I'm seeking without necessarily knowing how to do it effectively or, or in an, any kind of an absolute sense. But she said, you know, that the separateness you're reading is about your neurotype and she's like a professor. And so she knows way more about this stuff than me. But she said, like, it, your your instinct is not to be separate to it. It's to be a fundamental part of it. And that that was like one, you know, one of those little light bulbs that went off in the writing of the, the book. That it's it's we've got to stop doing things to the natural world and start recognizing our situatedness in as part of it, um, and and to feel that radically, to learn to feel that that lack of separation, and and therefore to stop thinking about what we can do to it to make it okay uh, that's yeah that was a that was a real kind of little flashbulb for me interesting yeah when, when I was writing The Enchanted Life it was similar but a little bit different it was very much about feeling that we kind of have a responsibility to be enchanted do you know what mm. I mean that, that mm. Mm. in order to keep the world alive I mean you know that we, we have this wonderful yeah. ancient Greek concept of the anima mundi the world soul mm. 
Mm. And it has always seemed to me that that is something that if you believe in it, you might believe that it can fade if it's not paid attention to. And that sense of enchantment, that sense of really finding joy in the face of an impossibly difficult world Mm. and increasingly difficult world is really an enormously big part of it that we have to do this. Yeah, and I I would say that one of the things I've noticed over the last few years is how fixated we are on like dystopias and post-apocalyptic visions and how um, how we kind of use the word disenchantment much more regularly than, than we'd ever use enchantment. And there's almost a sense that it's cool to be disenchanted, you know, that that comes with that sort of youthful cynicism and that sort of worldliness that would mean that we understood things better. And I just, I just lost faith in, in the, what inspires those visions. I don't trust them. I think, why are we, why are we spending all our attention on conjuring visions of everything going wrong and everything being truly awful rather than conjuring visions of of utopias really and 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 thinking about how we can heal and how we can enjoy that magic and like once I started noticing how often we bend towards the dystopian I I really felt like I needed to do something to counterbalance that it's interesting though I wonder if that's like a something that that becomes easier as we age too because is it like a a kind of youthful thing to to think that cynicism is the is cool and as we get older we have more to protect and more responsibility to take care I wonder yeah I think that might be part of it that might be part Mm. of it but the other thing that it seems to me and you know I'm 60 almost 62 so perhaps it perhaps it comes more acutely a little bit later is that sense that if you really think that you are doing what you are here to do you know and of course a lot of that depends on your belief system but we don't have to go Mm -hmm. into the specifics of it if you believe that you have a sense you know that you have a calling in this Mm. world and if you believe that you're actually acting out that calling, that you are now doing your work, which I think, you know, I've got lots to learn and lots to to grow into. But I think the kind of writing and work that I do is very much yeah. my gift is. And if you think that you're doing that, there is a sense, and I've, I've described this as a kind of um, a loss of attachment to outcome, by which I don't mean you don't give a damn anymore, but <laughs> you recognise that in a in a broken and breaking world, you can only do what you can do and what you can mm-hmm. do is what your gift is. And I think with a, a number of the older women that I have spoken to, particularly the ones in their 70s and even 80s who, you know, Mary Oliver like would still yeah. be doing what they had done, but perhaps in a more focused and acute way. Yeah. There is this sense of joy because because you're living what you were meant to live. And it's not that you don't care anymore about the brokenness around you and you don't get very angry mm-hmm. about it sometimes and you don't go out and march against this and that sometimes. Yeah. It's like all you can do, you can't save it. All you can do is what you're doing. And I think that really starts to come on mm. as we grow into elderhood and um, you know the later yeah. years, perhaps. It does make sense. I mean, I, I think you you gradually gain a more realistic sense of what you're capable of doing. And I think as well, more and more, I perceive the kind of 
the toxicity of, of excessive control, which actually I think I see a lot of the women around me trying to enact, like trying to control absolutely everything and how poisonous that is for them, but how poisonous it can actually be for the people around them who they're trying to organise all the time. And there's, there's real wisdom in just letting go of that and taking taking charge of the stuff that's yours you know and and realizing how small and how humble that that little package is that you that you have and that you can give and tuning in much more to other people's little packages of, of offering and realizing that that that's that's part of a system rather than something for you to personally boss about i i'm really i think i'm getting very post bossy <laughs> it's quite yeah. tiring trying to be bossy all the time really you know bossy I'm sure and and it is really that whole thing that we have just been talking about really is to me the essence of living well in an impossible apparently mm. seemingly breaking world you know because mm. people ask you that all the time don't they particularly young people who haven't quite got to grips with it yet it's like how do you how do you keep going and to me yeah. that is how you keep going you keep on doing what you do you keep on showing your gift and giving as much as you can whilst growing you know as a as an individual soul yourself and and that requires a faith in the world though I think that requires yeah. a faith in the world and a sense of meaning which again we're back yes. to the whole purpose of this back to purpose of meaning yeah I think you we can't get through this I mean it's such a particular age and it's so disordered and we're all I think we're all to some extent lost within it we don't know where this is going and the the for me the only valid option is to soften into that rather than to harden against it and to to you know to to undertake that grief i think i think we've got a huge work to do in grieving for this this period that is coming to a close and and making making space for the good that's coming next because there will be good there will be bad but there will be a great good that comes from it too because that just because there always is but yeah i have i do have that faith in in our ability to to change and to survive and to adapt, but but also to to take care of each other because the next world is going to be full of full of middle aged women who'll be sorting everything out and making sure everyone's fed and looked after, and that's that's just that kind of comforts me a lot. It is an interesting thing that the, the act of grieving for what is happening and the loss mm. of all the things that we used to love when we were younger. I mean, gosh, you know, when you get to 62 and you think all yeah. of the things that you love that are going and that are gone. Yeah. I, I don't yeah. think that grief is actually a phase. You know, I think it is mm. something that you walk beside for the rest of Always. your life. But grief yeah. is beautifully counterbalanced by joy. And there is a sense in which you can't feel the joy if you're not aware of the grief, just mm. as you can't appreciate mm you know the light if you're not aware of the dark and of course that's right up your street with with wintering learning to love and <laughs> yeah. the light. In fact, like you I love it very much more but that's another story so yeah I think that that yeah. is also part of the work of the second half of life it's 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 about mm. being able to hold two apparent opposites and or complexity just that that kind of 
the way that life is peppered with all kinds of different feelings all the time um and how flat life would seem without it and i you know that you you talk about joy like i i'm really troubled by how often if you do talk about joy in the current in the current climate people will say you haven't got time for that you know that that means you're not taking other people's pain seriously or you're not really engaged with this like no 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 we do not survive this without pointing our compass towards joy because otherwise what are we offering like what's the point what's it for we have to keep finding joy within all of this difficulty and and actually you know if we're going to take sides like if we if if fascism is on the rise again as it appears to be let us be the ones that model a good life a joyful life that that attracts people towards it I always want people to convince me by showing me their joy instead of showing me their anger. I think it's so important. Yeah, and certainly when I was practicing um, as a psychologist, um, and in fact all through my my training, um, since I first did my psychology degree, that sense of you can only ca- you can only make change by capturing people's imagination, and you can only mm. capture their imagination <laughs> if you can show them something they want to live, they want to become. Yeah. That they might grow into and so the joy is i agree absolutely crucial but again coming mm. back to that that idea that we we owe the world joy there's still a lot of beauty in it you know and yeah. to, re, to to be unable to, to to blunt ourselves so much that we're unable to see that because i think is is part of the problem and clearly books like yeah. enchantment are going to to help people find their way through that again I, yeah i hope so i i did you know when you write the initial kind of proposal for the book i think there was a line in there that just said i'm sick of dystopias i want to i want to offer something for us to to heal with to feel better with um and that was yeah that was definitely the aim at the core of it for to to be unashamedly optimistic actually because i am i'm still optimistic despite the fact that everything's breaking down I'm still optimistic. I think some some things that are breaking down need to be broken down. And I think life has changed. Life is fundamentally changed and, and we need to work out how it works now. But I want to be part of that rebuilding rather than te- the tearing down. Absolutely. Absolutely. And one last question, if I may, before we end to, to kind of take us back a little bit to Hagerty, but also perhaps it's interesting how that relates to relates to enchantment so something i always ask people on in during these conversations is we're talking about ultimately the journey into elderhood and the inevitable end of that journey is death mm. and how 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 do you feel about that when you think of death mm. is it is there a beauty in that as well is there an enchantment in death as well not that you would want to go and you know be immediately <laughs> taken no. up <laughs> but yeah. can you nevertheless see it as a as, as I sometimes do as a kind of friend that you have to learn to you know strange friend that you have to sometimes yeah. learn to strange to friend yeah. is that part of the enchantment do you think yeah I think so for me it for me it really is intrinsic actually to to that kind of knitting uh, knitting enchantment through every part of life which is what I aim to do for it to be absolutely all tangled together um and i you know i 
I like thinking about being a, a person with a life cycle, with a with a beginning, a middle, and, a, and an end. And I find that really helpful, honestly. Like I find it very clarifying to to think about my lifespan being limited. I I realise that's such a painful thought for lots of people, but I I don't find it painful, and I. I see it as my work to move towards it with it always in mind. Um, and I, yeah, I am, I have little memento mores, mores throughout the house because I, like, I love, I, I think they're really valuable. I think remembering you're going to die is very stealing, um, but it also drops me straight into that bigger context of being one tiny little human being amongst the, a mass of humanity um, and of being a living thing within lots of other living things and those things die and so will I and I, I I'm not unsettled by that I, I would love to explain how to not be unsettled by it but I'm I'm not unsettled by it I find it I find it comforting in in the sense of knowing the pathway yeah it's it's no, not I, troubling I, I, me. if you think of death itself do you personify death so i do i personify everything i can't help it something you know archetypal psychologists is like everything gets a face yes. yeah. uh, you know my, my idea of death would be somewhere between a very serious kind of um old woman of the kind in the old stories that gathers up <laughs> the bones and um terry pratchett's wonderful death with a sense of humor you know i like the idea yeah. of being funny as well he has a sense of humor yeah <laughs> Do you, do you yeah think? i'm i'm not a personifier like you like you you do you create these lovely um figures to to think with and i struggle to do that actually and I, in fact i think the the further i travel this path the more i realize that i am deeply comfortable with not knowing with the kind of um with the mystery with the actual mystery itself and that i'm at home there and where I get uncomfortable is when people try and pin down the language too hard or try and um, over explain exactly what it is and what's happening. That's when I begin to squirm a bit because I don't I don't think we know. Um, and I think in a way like your archetypes kind of hold that mystery quite well because they're they're human, they're not human, but they're they're kind of people. And so they're kind of quixotic and open to change and unknowable to, to some extent. And I, yeah, I think about Ursula Le Guin and the way she wrote about the way and that kind of Taoist sort of sense that to look at this force too closely is for it to dissipate and that it, 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 doesn't, it doesn't want our scrutiny. <laughs> it's resistant to our scrutiny. Um, and that's that's the place I'm kind of comfortable in is is this sense that I have to keep remaking my understanding and remaking my language around it in order to meet this shifting demand for comprehension, which I think is the truth. I think we'll always be wondering and changing our minds about it and, and feeling like we haven't quite got it yet. <laughs> Indeed. Well, thank you. That's a wonderful place to stop. <laughs> with which to stop. Um, so where can people find you? Where would you like to direct people to, to find out more about your writing and, and who you are? I think the best place to find me at the moment is on my newsletter, which is katherinemay.substack.com. 
and I also have a podcast called How We Live Now, which you can uh, can listen to. Uh, I'm about to make a new season, so that's uh, that's my next mission. <laughs> that I enjoy your podcast very much. Yeah. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for the conversation. It's been a real pleasure. It's lovely. Thank you. So nice to talk to you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Hagitude Sessions. Please think about writing a review on Apple Podcasts and sharing this episode with your friends. And if you'd like to find out more about Hagitude, the book and the membership program, please visit hagitude.org.